Father, thanks for a moment to be still. Quiet our hearts to hear from you this morning. Thanks for everybody that's here, that it's not by accident that people are sitting in the seats they're sitting in. Thanks that we're covering this text today, and I pray that you would help us see the beauty of Jesus in his resurrected form in the Gospel of John. Give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it, hearts to be transformed and to be changed. God, we need you. We thank you that you've called us, put us in a family, sent us on a mission, and we get to see it this morning in your text. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, how much do you like your name? The name your parents gave you. My legal name is Jonathan David Demeter. I don't like that name. Um, that's why I go by the name of John. If any of you don't know that, my, you can call me John. Um, but my parents named me Jonathan. I, ever since I can remember, I've never really liked that name. It just feels like very restrictive, like somebody that in their wardrobe only wears turtlenecks and like lives in England and plays croquet, like Jonathan. So as early as I can remember, I was asking everybody to call me John instead of Jonathan. So you can vary your name, but even now you can kind of full change your name if you want. My mom's mom, um, my grandma on my mom's side, her name was Iola, Iola Darzis. Grew up in a very proper home in Iowa. And um, in college, she was getting pursued by my grandpa. And at the time, in the college they were in, it was not culturally acceptable for a guy to be hollering at another girl. And so they decided, when I yell up to you, I'm not going to yell Iola because that's going to look super shady. I'm going to yell Joe because anybody walking by just thinks it's me yelling to my buddy. So he would go to her apartment or her dorm and he would yell, Joe, Joe. And then she would come down and they would hang out eventually getting married. So she became Joe Patterson. That nickname stuck. She liked it better than Iola. And I knew her as Grandma Joe her whole life. And everybody I knew around her knew her as Joe. Very little women, you know, Joe. Um, and so that name stuck with her, which is funny when I asked my parents later, like, why did you name me Jonathan? I don't know if you've asked this question to your parents of like, what would you have named me if I wasn't a boy, if I was a girl? And so they said, well, your grandma's name was Joe, J-O, and my dad's sister is named D, D-E-E. -E. So they were going to name me if I was a girl, Joe space D-E-E, -E, Jody. <laughs> and that's when I knew God is in control. <laughs> I'm not a girl. Because what if my name was Jody? Like, am I a country singer? Like, what, like, I have enough problems with Jonathan. Jody is like a whole nother level of, like, problems. How much does your name actually affect the way you interact with people? Robert Lane, this was in the late 1950s, already had five children. He was living in Harlem, New York, kind of in the projects. And his sixth child was on the way. And he was kind of plagued by this idea that he really thought, man, if you name your kids something, it might change the trajectory of their life. So his sixth boy comes in, not sixth boy, but sixth child, who happened to be a boy, comes in 1958, and he decides to name his son Winner. W-I-N-N-E-R. Winner. Like, this kid's going to be a winner. He has to be. Three years later, another baby comes. 
Winter's sibling. The dad's going, man, I don't know if Winter worked out. Let me ask the daughter, the oldest daughter. He goes, hey, what should we name our next kid? She goes, well, we have a winner. Maybe we should name him Loser. <laughs> the dad names the baby Loser. This is a real story. So he has Winter Lane and Loser Lane. The irony of all of it, if you can already guess, Winter was a disaster in his life. He was constantly getting picked on, constantly in fights, in and out of school. He was abusing substances. He's in and out of jail. He's on and off the street his whole life. Loser, on the other hand, goes to this prep school in high school, plays college sports, ends up going into the police academy, does really well. His friends call him Lou instead of Loser, which is good. <laughs> but how much does your name actually affect your life? I think it's a decent question to ask, and why are we tuned in to our name? Just like we saw Isaiah up here and Charlie up here, they're going to hear those names, and it's going to be something about hearing that name that's going to change the rest of their life. When you're in a crowded room and you hear your name called, even if it's not for you, you automatically, your brain does something to pay attention. Dale Carnegie says this. He says, a person's name to that person is the sweetest and most important sound in any language. That person's name is the sweetest and most important sound in any language. And what we're going to see here in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, is that Jesus specifically uses Mary's name to wake her up to who he is. There's something about this text that needs to be intriguing to us, that Jesus calls her by name, he gives her a new family, and then he sends her on mission, which is what he does for us if you're a Christ follower. He calls you by name. He gives you a new family, and he sends you on a mission. That's what we'll see in our text this morning. And it's important for us to realize this, as we've been traveling through the Gospel of John, it's important, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, to understand that John is written much later than the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And because of that, he's assuming his audience knows the details of the other parts of the accounts, of the other Gospels. And so John gives us very different details if you look Next to all the four Gospels, the resurrection has very different details than the other three Gospels. Why does John do that? I like how Leslie Newbegin says it in his commentary when he says that, uh, says this about this. He says, John's account of what happened on the third day after the death of Jesus has a remarkably different atmosphere than those of the first three Gospels. Whereas they speak of dazzling appearances, of an earthquake, of fear and amusement among the witnesses, the account of John is calm and unspectacular. The emphasis is upon the restoration of the personal relationship broken by the events of Friday. Because John sees the lifting up of Jesus on the cross as the supreme manifestation of the divine glory, he sees the resurrection not as the reversal of the passion, not as a bringing out of glory unto defeat, but rather as the enabling of the disciples to believe and so to be brought into a relationship with him who death cannot destroy. In other words, to have life in his name. The promises of John in chapter 14 are fulfilled. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so it's important for us as we look at this first interaction with we're looking at the, the climax of all of human history of the death of Jesus, who was God, and his resurrection. Those two things come together. And John's account, the first time we see about the resurrection, is what we're going to look at this morning. The last two weeks we looked at Jesus' death and then Jesus' burial last week. 
And now we're looking at his resurrection. So if you have a Bible, open it up. We're in John chapter 20. You can follow along on the screen, look on your phone. There's Bibles in the seats in front of you if you need a Bible. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. What's going on here? And just for sake of time, I'm going to be doing some of the summing up of, of the text, telling the story back as we already read it. But as we see this scene, John focuses on Mary Magdalene. In the other Gospels, Mary is there. She heads to the tomb, but she's not by herself. She's with some other women. But specifically, John is focusing on her. So I imagine that she is walking there. And even in verse 2, if you look down at your Bible, there's an indication she's not alone. When she runs back, she says, we do not know where they have placed us. So clearly, Mary's not alone, even though John is giving focus to her and the attention is put on her. So they go to the tomb. The women are going to the tomb, probably to anoint Jesus with oil. They're also probably going just to have some closure. When we saw them last, when Jesus was dying, his, some of his last words are saying, this is your son, to John, to Mary, and saying, like, this is your new family, and then he dies. And so they're going to get closure. Can you imagine? We know the back end of the story if you know Christianity at all. But can you imagine, like, they really think he's dead. It's over. Like, I spent my whole life, I invested my whole life, I believed in this person, and now maybe I was wrong. Has that ever happened to you in your relationship with God? You thought God was going to do it this way. You were expecting this certain thing from God, and then all of a sudden it doesn't happen that way, and you're going, is this really real? Like, do I even really believe in God anymore? This is what's happening in this moment with Mary and the others. They're going to mourn the loss and the death of Jesus. They don't know that he is alive yet. So they're heading there. It's, it's dark. Verse 1 tells us that. Probably to anoint Jesus. She's probably with the other women is, is how I'm imagining it. And they can see the stone. The stone is fairly large as it gets rolled back and forth on the tomb. And they can probably see the stone from a distance that it's open. Because even in the other Gospels, it's saying they're going, I don't know how we're going to unroll the stone to anoint the body. I don't know how we'll do that. But they get close enough where they see it's gone. I imagine Mary just leaves the other women. And she starts running back to tell the other disciples. So she runs back. She doesn't think he's risen at this point. This is important. She's going, somebody stole his body which is somewhat common at that time. There were grave robbers all the time. Someone stole his body. What are we supposed to do? We're not going to get closure how we need closure. She runs back. She gets Peter and John. They have a foot race to the tomb, which is hilarious that John just says, well, I beat Peter in the foot race. I don't, we don't know why that, that's the case, but he makes it a point to say he got there first. He gets there first. He doesn't run in. He gets to the edge of the tomb and he just sits there like this. Maybe he's catching his breath. Maybe he doesn't want to go in because it's unclean. But he's sitting there and he peeks in and he sees a linen cloth. He doesn't see a body. Peter zips right by him, just like Peter. Goes straight in, doesn't even stop. He goes straight in and he starts examining. Then look at verse 7 down at your text. This is an interesting detail. Actually, let's start in 6 and then go to 7. It says this, Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up and placed by itself. Why does John give us this detail in the text? This is an interesting detail for us to pay attention to. We were in our redemption community, the one we're a part of a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about our rhythms of life, just how we do life, what our rhythms look like, and the question got asked to the group of like, who's a bed maker in the room? Like, who, who makes your bed? And like, there were various answers. Maybe about half the room were bed makers. And it was like, how many pillows? And that conversation. Um, 
And then we started talking to the spouses that were in the room because there's some single people and some married people. And then it was like, well, does your spouse make the bed? Or does your spouse? Like, it got a little off the rails, but it was fine. Um, but clearly from this text, John wants us to see Jesus is a bed maker, right? He raises from the dead. He folds up his clothes. Or you could say like he folds the laundry. I know my wife's, one of her least favorite chores is actually not putting the laundry in or changing the laundry to the dryer, but it's actually folding the laundry, putting it away. Like that's part of the thing like that she doesn't like. But clearly Jesus is a God that loves order and he wants us to fold our laundry and to make our beds. That's clearly, I don't think, the reason John is giving us this detail. Why I do think he is giving us this detail um, is because one of the myths at the time that John is writing this is that somebody just came and stole Jesus's body. He didn't really raise from the dead. Somebody came and stole it. There's tons of problems with this, but even what I think he's illustrating here is like, if grave robbers came to steal the body of Jesus, ain't no way they're going to fold up his clothes and leave them there. They're going to try and get the body as quick as they can with everything involved in it. This is something else is going on here. So I think what John is trying to do is dismiss the myth on a lot of levels that Jesus didn't really come back to life. Somebody stole his body. Why would they put that, that detail in there other than John going, no, he actually did rise from the dead. So that's what's going on. And then verse 8, then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, he makes note of that again, um, also went in. And when he saw, he believed. I love that line because, again, the whole gospel of John, the whole reason he's writing, he tells us in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, why he's writing these things, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. The interesting, to me, the interesting point to me about this verse and this specific interaction that John said he saw and he believed, he doesn't see Jesus risen yet. He doesn't see the full evidence. Some of us in our lives with our faith with God go, well, I need to see this, or God needs to show me this, or I have to know this before I really believe in God, and then there's no faith. John sees Jesus isn't there. He's connecting the dots. He goes, he's alive. He's alive, I believe, even though I don't see him yet. It's funny, even in verse 9, it's going well. It says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must be raised from the dead. So I don't even think John fully understands the implication. That's why I think that's verses there. He doesn't connect that the risen Messiah is connected all to the Old Testament and what it actually means for the future. I don't think he realizes that. I just think he knows Jesus is alive. And for some of us, again, we need to step into faith not knowing all the answers of the Bible. The more you get to know the Bible, the more you realize, man, I don't really know the Bible. It's about stepping into faith and going, okay, do I know enough to believe? Do I know enough to believe who Jesus says he is? Then verse 10, it says the disciples went back to their homes. They're typical men. They're going like, well, what are we supposed to do here? There's nothing, there's nothing to do here. We can't find the body. And so they just leave. Mary, on the other hand, stays back. Picking up in verse 11, she stooped, or she stood outside the tomb as she wept. She stooped and looked into the tomb. Mary stays around and weeps. And in her weeping, she's stooping down and she looks inside and she sees something different. She sees angels, two angels inside the tomb, which John and Peter do not see. They're not there when they're there. This is an interesting other piece of writing that John includes in this. 
in that there's something about when the, angel, the angels appear at the resurrection, they're only appearing to women. You notice that? They don't appear to the men, which is a pretty fascinating fact. I think it's dispelling, just like we talked about John dispelling in verse 7, like there's not grave robbers that came in and stole the body of Jesus. That's not how they would do it with the linen cloths lying there. I think what John is pushing into here and what the Lord is pushing into here is like the other myth of like, oh, the disciples made this story up. They're the ones that stole the body. They're the ones that have Jesus. They're saying he rose from the dead, but he didn't really rise from the dead. And what I think John is doing in this moment is he's going, listen, do you see who Jesus shows up to first? Do you see who the angels show up to first? It's not men, it's women. Here's why this is important. Because in this culture, a woman, her evidence wouldn't even be brought into court. It wouldn't even be matter. It would get thrown out. They just didn't believe. So if the disciples were making up this story, why would they say the women are the first ones to see Jesus? It wouldn't make any sense. It loses credibility. They would say, we saw Jesus the first time, but that's not what happens here. Clearly, Jesus has a plan, and Jesus constantly throughout the Gospels is going out of his way to honor women. We have to realize that. If you look at the widow of Nain, the woman at Simon's house, the woman at the well, the woman touched him in the crowd and he heals her, the woman caught an adulterer, and Mary at Martha's house, his mother at the cross, as we just read a couple of weeks ago. Jesus continues to go after and honor women, and we need to as well in the church. But again, I think this is dismissing the myth that the disciples are the one that made all this up, because there's no way they would put Mary as the first eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. But that's what happened, and that's what's true. Let's keep going. So Mary is in there. She sees these angels. She has this conversation with them. Verse 13, they say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. So again, she doesn't think he's raised from the dead yet. She thinks somebody just stole his body. Verse 14, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know it was Jesus. Let's stop there just for a second. So imagine the picture. Mary's totally distraught. She's weeping. It's dark outside. She has this interaction with these angels, asking, why are you crying? And then she turns around, and Jesus is standing right there. The risen Christ, her teacher, her savior, and she doesn't even recognize. Now, we don't know if she doesn't recognize him because she's so distraught. We don't know if she doesn't recognize him because it's dark out. We don't know if she doesn't recognize him because maybe he looks different. We don't know. All we know is she doesn't recognize him even though he's standing right in front of her. And for some of us that have yet to believe in Jesus, God is standing right in front of you, waiting for you to come to him, and you can't even recognize him easy for us as Christians to go, Jesus is beautiful and he's amazing and it's God that loves us because God has woken us up to who he is. But for some of us and our non-Christian friends or our family, we're going like, how do you not see the beauty of Jesus? I don't understand how you don't see how beautiful he is. Why don't you come to him? And he's standing right there waiting for you. How does Mary recognize it's Jesus? Ephesians 2 gives us some indication of this. I love this passage. Ephesians 2, chapter 1 through 5 says this. 
Paul is giving us our state as non-Christians before we come into a relationship with Jesus. He says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, all of us start in a dark state. Even though we're created in God's image and loved by him, we are separated from him because of our sin. We are dead. There is nothing we can do to bring life into ourselves until what? God makes us alive in him. Mary's standing right there. She does not recognize that Jesus is right in front of her until what happens. Look back in John chapter 20. Go back to 14 again. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. And said to her, he said to her, Jesus said, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. So she's confused. She's weeping. She's mourning. Jesus is right in front of her. He speaks to her. Why are you weeping? What's going on? What's wrong? What are you seeking? And she still doesn't recognize him. Until what? He says her name. Mary, all of a sudden, she recognizes it's Jesus, her Savior, the one she's been waiting for, looking for, and all of a sudden, the veil comes off, and she just embraces him. This is all of us that have come to Jesus at some point in our life. At some point, we were dark and dead, as Ephesians says, but then God comes into our life in some form or fashion, and he says our name. And we come into interaction with him, into relationship with him, and we start to believe. John Calvin says it this way. He says, in Mary, we have an image of our calling. For the only entrance into the true knowledge of Christ is when he first knows us, then intimately invites us to himself. Do you know that he calls you by name? If you're a follower of Jesus, he knows your name. And he called you to himself. Do you realize how personal that is? How intimate that is? The God we follow, the God of the Bible, the Christian God, Jesus, he intimately calls you by name and says, come and follow me. He doesn't need to do that. We don't deserve that. But he does it anyway out of his love. And everything else you chase after for in satisfaction in life, whether it's money or status or good things like family or career, the only reason those things are going to call your name is to use you. The only reason Jesus calls your name is because he loves you. He loves you. And you get to follow him when he calls your name, when he wakes you up to who he is. Isaiah 43 says it this way. Says, but those who trust, or, or, excuse me, but now, thus says the Lord, 
He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I've bought you back. I've called you by name, you are mine. This last week, there's two families in our church they are going to be dedicating their kids in second service, the Burris family and the Brewer family. They've been engaged in foster care for a long time, and there were two children in their home that uh, Zayden is five years old, a little boy in the Burris home, and Athena is one year one years old. She's a little girl in the Brewer home. They've been fostering them. Their uh, case came to severance, and so they had the opportunity to adopt both of these. Their siblings, Zayden and uh, Athena, are siblings, but they're growing up in a different house. And they said, "We want to adopt you." They've been praying that they would have the official adoption ceremony before our next children's dedication, which they didn't know it was, and it's the week before. They've been praying for that. So the official adoption case finished on Tuesday. They, you know, everything's on Zoom now, uh, even adoption cases. And so they were in our flex space on Zoom. Both families, both of their extended families were there to have the actual ceremony where the court says, it's done, you were adopted, and then they celebrated. I came late. I was at something else. I came to back into the party, and I come in, and people are eating and kind of celebrating, and I walk into my office, and there's a bathroom right there, and suddenly Zayden comes walking out of the bathroom, five years old. He gets the little stool out, puts it up. He's washing his hands. I go over to him. I haven't had an interaction with him since everything happened. He doesn't really know me very well, if at all. And so I say, hey, buddy, how's your day going? And he goes, it's good. Washing his hands. He goes, it's good. And then he looks at me. He stops washing his hands and he goes, I got a new name today. And this name is forever. He's five years old. Okay, Satan. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm like, oh my goodness. He understands he has a new name. He's in a new family. His life has changed forever. He's five years old. He can get it. Do you know you have a new name? That God has called you by name to himself. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're put into a new family. Your life has changed forever. That's what's true in this story. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, he calls Mary by her name, and she is changed What's Mary's reaction to that? I think it's totally fair. She just leaps at him and clings to him, right? Verse 17 says, she just turns and she just grabs onto him. Because again, if you're Mary, the last time you had interaction with Jesus, what happened? They took him away and they killed him. I'm thinking if I'm Mary, I'm "I'm never letting you go again. (laughs) Like, this is it, Jesus. Like, bear hug. Like, you can't believe it. He's alive right in front of you. How does Jesus react to her? Verse 17 says to her, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Jesus changes the language of how he speaks now that he's resurrected, now that he has paid for the penalty of sin. He says, My Father and your father, my God, and your God, because now there's access to the Father because of what he's done on the cross. So not only does he call your name, but he gives you a new family. He puts you in this family called the church. 
Now I know the church is all kinds of messed up. That's just true, because we're people. But you know what's all kinds of beautiful too? Even in the Burrises and the Brewers, and their decision to adopt these two little ones, that they still get to see their siblings every week at church. And in life, there's beauty to the church. As we love each other, we sacrifice for one another, and we pray for one another, and we give meals to one another, and we laugh with one another. There's a beauty to this family called the church and all of its mess. And God puts us in it as a family as he calls us with our new names. Not only does he call us with our name, he gives us a new family, but then he does what? He sends us on mission. What does he tell Mary to do? Even in the midst of her clinging to him, he says, don't cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. He's saying, like, listen, there's a spirit that's going to be coming. I'm going to go back to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your Father, excuse me, your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. So not only does Jesus call your name in an intimate way, he puts you in a family called the church, and then he says, go tell everyone. Go tell everyone. Zayden is five years old. He barely knows me. He's washing his hands, and he's going to tell me he got a new name because it's changed his life. That's our call. Our beautiful call to be on mission as Christians is to say, he called my name. He's changed me. I have a new family. And you know what? You can be a part of this family too. You can be adopted into this family of God. You can know that your sins are forgiven. You can know God loves you in an intimate way. You can know where you're going to be for eternity. It is our job to announce that truth to people. That's what he tells Mary to do. Don't cling to me. Don't stay in your holy huddle. No, there's work to do. There's more family to bring into the fold of God. So we see the beautiful picture this morning. Because of the resurrection, that Jesus calls us by name, gives us a new family, and then sends us out on mission to invite other people into the fold. Are you doing those things? Do you know that Jesus has called you by name? Do you remember that moment? Do you embrace your family called the church? And then do you go out to help other people get involved? Easter's coming up. It's a great invitation. People won't go. Some of you people are in here just because your neighbors or your family dedicated their kid. You're like, I don't know, I'm not interested in this. But you're here, right? You're listening. I hope, maybe not. But you're here in the building it's an opportunity for us, even as Easter comes, that people won't usually go to church, but they'll go to Easter, they'll go to Christmas. It's an opportunity for us to engage in conversation, to be on mission, to invite new people into the fold. And I realize that maybe this isn't you. Maybe you feel like, well, God hasn't called my name. I'm not a Christian. What does that even look like? And even embedded in mission, it's not like this magical thing where you're sleeping on your bed and all of a sudden you hear God calling her, Jonathan, he would come to John, he would come to Jonathan, come to me. It's not like that. He's called my name through people. He's called your name through people, people that have been on mission to say, hey, this Jesus is real. Let me show you who he is. And so we get to be that part of the process, the link in somebody's spiritual chain to say, do you know who Jesus is? You need to know him because that's where life is found. 
And if you're sitting in this room today and you don't know Jesus, you self-proclaim and go, no, nah, I'm not a Christian. I'm... Is God doing something right now in you to tap on your shoulder to go, okay, it's enough chasing after all this other stuff. You just keep hitting the ceiling. You need to come to me. You need to give your life to me. That's where you will find life. I know not everybody in here is a follower of Jesus but maybe this is part of the process of you deciding to come to Jesus. Somebody's been praying for you. You've been in situations and circumstances where you just can't find life. And Jesus is saying, come to me. My hope is this morning, if that's you, you would take a step of faith, just like John did, just like Mary did, to say, I want to trust Jesus for the first time. We're going to spend some time praying this morning. And if that's you, and if you want to take that step of faith, I would just invite you to either talk to the person who brought you, or if you want to talk to me, I'm going to be over in this space, this prayer space. If you want to come and have a conversation, I would love to do that. Not any type of car salesman-y way of you need Jesus in your life right now. Don't walk out of here without having Jesus. But like, that's really where life is found. It's found in the gift of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your goodness to us, for your love. Thanks that you call us by name. Help us that know you to remember that, that moment that you woke us up to who you are, the beauty of you. Would you give us the faith to believe that? Would you give us the faith to trust the family you've put us in, in the church? And God, would you help us be on mission to tell other people about your goodness and your beauty? We need you to do that. We ask that you would encourage us this morning in those things. We pray in your name. Amen.